Take your Bibles and head to Luke 19 with me, please. Luke 19. Reading through the different gospel accounts leading up to Palm Sunday. Next week I have a Palm Sunday message for you. And I decided rather than press into Genesis in the next chapter, we're going to pick that back up after Easter because I didn't want to press in one week and then get a multi-part split up. So I'm going to do a message leading up to Palm Sunday today, then next week specifically a Palm Sunday message, and then uh, an Easter message. And we have a very special series of things happening with our Good Friday experience and all of that. But uh, Jesus is passing through Jericho, heading up to Jerusalem. Now, when we were there back in the fall, a hundred of us from Grace went to the Holy Land. We went to Jericho. We stayed a night in Jericho, and I'll talk about um, that in a moment. But we, we saw a sycamore tree when we were there. But then you go up through the valley of the shadow of death, literally, and then you end up in the holy city. It is up higher, the the Mount Zion, uh, upon which Jerusalem is built, upon which the temple and the mount is built, or was built. And so, um, this is what Jesus is doing, and that sort of sets the stage. We see him on his journey. Why is he going to Jerusalem, of course? Well, think about it. He's going to have Passover, which we call the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. He's going to have a Passover meal with his followers. Then he's going to go to the cross. He's going to intentionally give himself for us. But uh, before we get there, I was reading this story about a local fitness uh, club owner. He was offering a 1000 bucks to anybody that could come behind him and even get one more drop out of a lemon that he had already squeezed. So he would squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and squeeze, and then when he knew he couldn't squeeze anymore, if you could get one more drop out, you'd get the thousand bucks. And so you can imagine these big dudes lined up, weightlifters and construction guys, and some, even some pro wrestlers came along and said, I can handle it. Nobody could get a single drop out. Until one day, this skinny, sort of nerdy-looking guy comes in and signs up for the contest. And after the laughter dies down, the little guy picked up the previously squeezed lemon, and he holds it over the glass, and here's one drop, two drops, three drops. This guy gets six more drops out of the lemon. The owner can't believe it. As he's writing the guy the check, he said, Bud, to look at you, I'd have never thought this would have happened. He said, what do you do, man? Are you like a lumberjack or or are you some kind of hidden, weird, like weightlifter or something? And the guy said, no, sir, I work for the IRS. (laughs) Well, (laughs) tax season is upon us, right? So... We understand how that feels. Do you ever feel like you get squeezed? Uncle Sam just keeps on squeezing and squeezing and squeezing. Who would have thought you would have had to have a a Ben Franklin to buy a dozen eggs? Who would have thought that this would look the way it does today? But we're going to focus today on an IRS man and not just any IRS man, a really high up IRS man. He had not only cheated himself, he had cheated all the people in the area in which he lived in and around Jerusalem. And so Jesus is going to do a radical work in this tax man's life. Now, I know you know him, and I know you know his story. If you've been in church much at all, or if you grew up hearing the Sunday school stories or the songs, you know this guy. And this story, interestingly enough, is only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And so this is a unique snapshot as Jesus is coming through Jericho up to Jerusalem before Palm Sunday when they wave the branches next week. This is a unique snapshot, and I want us to see in this snapshot the mission of 
the Messiah. So with that being said, stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. You remember that Jesus has healed the blind man on the road in, and there was another man with him according to one of the gospels, but these blind guys are now seeing, they're praising God, and now it says, then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, and who, or see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was a wee little man. That's the way I learned it. I don't think that's PC anymore, but it just says in my Bible, he was of short stature. And so he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree for the Lord. He went, no, he climbed up in a sycamore tree for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, for I'm going to your house too. Okay. Y'all have heard it. Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today. I must stay at your house. And he made haste and he came down. Look at this. Watch. And he received him joyfully. There's a lot to that phrase received him joyfully. But when they saw it, in other words, the Jews around Jericho at the time, the, the neighbors, when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner, like, like they weren't, I guess. And then Zach stood and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, this is impressive because it was supposed to be a twofold, but he said, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. Now watch, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful story. I know a lot of us learned it as children. We learned a little song that went with it, and we've heard about this guy before. But I pray today that we would not just look at this man and consider his circumstance, but in so doing, we would allow the light of the gospel and the Holy Spirit to penetrate our own hearts, to see where we are, to see if we have indeed received Jesus joyfully. If we have, then salvation has come to our house. If not, we are still lost, but the good news is that Jesus came to seek and to save those that are lost. God, speak, save, restore, and heal today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. i tell you what really excites me about what's going on upstairs is not just there's a room full of people that may be coming part of grace. What excites me is that every single Life at Grace class we've had for a very long time, some people have gotten saved out of it. I met one young man that gave his heart and life after our service. He gave his life to Jesus just a couple of weeks ago. Um, he's the grown grandson of one of our families and he started coming to grace. Do you know every week of this year, every week of 2023 to my knowledge, we have had someone or someones giving their heart and life to Jesus between or after our services. Uh, last week, we had someone rush through the door and say, I need to talk to someone about giving my life to Jesus. They got saved before they ever came into the worship service, and then they came in and worshiped. I'm cool with that too. 
Because it's certainly not my preaching or teaching that saves anybody. If God doesn't save them, they don't get saved, right? And so I'm so excited that we get to see these characteristics for why Jesus came. And so I'm gonna use the word Christ because Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew Messiah, the chosen one of God, the one who is setting his face toward Jerusalem to pay the price for our sins, to be buried and raised the third day by the power of God, this chosen one, Jesus the Christ, came to seek and to save first little people. Little people. Now I know what you may think when you hear that word, but I want to expand our horizons together. See, in verse 2, we see that Zacchaeus was a man of some prominence. His name in Hebrew means pure or clean, which is interesting, of course, because he was anything but pure or clean, especially with the job he had. As a tax collector, he worked for Rome, and he would have been certainly considered a traitor by the Jewish people. The fact that he worked for the Roman IRS likely indicated that he really loved money more than people. These were a despised group of people in the time of Christ. But he was more than an IRS agent, wasn't he? The Bible says that Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. That means that Zacchaeus was in charge of multiple tax agents and was able to take a cut of commission from all who collected taxes under him. I mean, he stood at the top of the collection pyramid. So he's stuffing his pockets full of shekels before Rome ever sees a penny. And so that if the um, collectors maybe were supposed to take 10% for Rome, no doubt Zach and the gang would have taken 20% or even more. And Jericho was the perfect place for Zacchaeus because a lot of people were coming and going. In fact, if you were to see Jericho today, because of the water in this very arid, desert-like place, it has water in and around Jericho, some very famous springs in that area, and it's not too far from the Jordan River, you would find that even today it is populated. And you say, no, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I remember Joshua. And I remember the story of them marching around the city walls seven times and the walls came crumbling down. And I remember that God put a curse there and said, man shall never rebuild there. Well, a couple things you need to know. Number one, this Jericho was not that Jericho. They were about a mile apart. They shared a name, but they were not built on the same ground. Today, ancient Jericho is within sort of the city confines of the Jericho, modern Jericho, but that, that has almost little to no Christians in it now. That's Palestinians, they're Arabs, Muslim. And so what you find today is Jericho is a very different place. But then it was not the same Jericho, not the walled city of Joshua's day. But Jericho was considered the tax capital of Palestine. It was the center of a vast trade network from Damascus all the way to Egypt. Not surprisingly then, what does verse 2 tell us about Zacchaeus? He was not only the head dog for the IRS, he was a rich man. But he was a rich renegade in the eyes of the religious people. He would have been thought of as fondly as a high-level drug dealer or pimp today. In fact, the minds, in the minds of the people, tax collectors were often linked to murderers and robbers and rapists and adulterers and other sinners. But Christ came to seek and to save little people. And Zacchaeus was considered lowest of the low, not just in height, but in character. Now, y'all know that tax collectors were not new to the ministry of Jesus Christ. On his earthly journey, Jesus had attracted, and worse yet, in the eyes of the Pharisees, often received tax collectors warmly. He had shared meals with tax collectors before, but tax collector and sinner were like two synonymous terms back then. And so Zacchaeus had at least two problems. He was, in fact, a wee little man. 
In fact, if we look back to the average size of a Jewish man in that day, they would have been considerably shorter than I am. And so I'm 6'2", give or take six inches. And so if you think about this, they would have been, the average Jewish man would have been in the low five. Zacchaeus certainly would have been lower than that and probably in the four foot something range. So he was a very, very small man. The language indicates he was a very small man. And that, of course, reminded me and gave me trauma of the Randy Newman song of the 70s, right? Newman later said, oh, it was sarcastic and it wasn't meant to be offensive and it was about bigotry or prejudice. But you listen to the lyric for yourself and see if this will fly in 2023. Short people got no reason. Short people got, you know what he says next? No reason to live. That's terrible, y'all. They got little hands and little eyes. They walk around telling great big lies. They got little noses and little teeth and they wear platform shoes on their nasty little feet. I am deeply offended. (laughs) But we learned in Sunday school that Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. So what did he do? Climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Y'all heard that? If not, you better get right with Jesus and learn that song. The reality is that Zacchaeus was not only a wee little man, and that's a problem with his physical height, but even more of a problem for him was his small spiritual stature. His sins were keeping him from Jesus. The Bible says in Isaiah 59 too, that our iniquities have separated us from God. In fact, our prayers don't even make it past the ceiling when we regard or hide iniquity in our heart. So I've written it like this. Not only was Zacchaeus of short stature, he, like us all, was not able to measure up to God's standards. And guys, as you jot that down, if you're a note taker this morning, I would remind you that all have sinned, let's fill this out, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Yeah, that's a good reminder. All of us are in the boat. You say, well, I'm no tax collector. Yeah, but you got your own stuff. You you may not be stealing money from people. You may not be skimming off the top, but you you got your own stuff. Don't believe me, drive through Knoxville today. Bassmaster Classic is in town. We'll probably go to the weigh-in later today. Do you know the city swells by like 100,000 people? People love fishing to the glory of God. I do too. But here's the thing. It'll drive you crazy. You can be as tall as Shaq, but apart from Christ, you're still going to fall short in the eyes of God. Nobody is big in God's eyes apart from Jesus. Now, that is not to say you're not valuable. God loves you. You have infinite value and worth. Jesus showed you how much you're worth to him. Jesus stretched himself out and said, I love you this much. So Jesus proved his love for us. But apart from Jesus, we're all small. And so what does Zach do in verse four? He ran ahead, he climbed a sycamore tree. The Lord is coming his way. He's resourceful, right? He's short, but he's not slow. He runs ahead. The crowd's not gonna let him through. They could care less about this guy. They hate the guy. But the picture's funny, right? I mean, first, think about it. You're a wealthy man and everybody knows you and you're running. That would have been unheard of in that day. Second, you are climbing trees. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I love climbing trees. I loved it when I was a kid. But a good climbing tree is like a sycamore. The branches come up and fairly low to the ground, they begin to become more horizontal. If you were to see a sycamore even today, that's what you're gonna find, a good climbing tree. And so he finds a sycamore tree and it's kind of funny. I mean, he's skimming up this tree and you shimmying up this tree and you could imagine, you know, he gets snagged a time or two on his fancy cloak. I mean, he's rich after all, but he gets up there and he is determined to see about this particular man. He doesn't allow anyone or anything or any condition to stop him from being on mission in that moment. 
And I would ask you this, what about you today? Is anyone or anything keeping you from seeing who Jesus really is? Like, well, what would my friends think? Well, my pride, I've said I don't believe this stuff. I've rejected and rejected and rejected. What, what would they think? Well, none of us should really care what anybody thinks but our creator, God. And so, you know, I've been watching the NCAA tournament. Of course, didn't particularly care for what I saw this week. The, uh, the bad Vols showed up. But we, we were able to go to a game back when they played Alabama and whooped them, which was glorious. But we were right there near the floor. And one thing about men's college basketball, if you get close to them, you're amazed by their size and their speed and their aggression. I mean, when they played Duke, that was a beautiful thing to behold, right? I mean, that is an aggressive, fast sport. And here's the thing, even watching before Zakai got hurt, Zakai Ziegler, if you watched him up close, it was mind-boggling. And that guy's about my size. And what I knew watching him and watching those big tall boys is there's no way I could keep up. There's no way I could get out there and even have a hope of getting two or three dribbles in. There's no way. But on the court of life, God is not concerned with how physically tall I am or how much ability I possess. God has come to seek and to save little people like me. And that has a lot more to do with me and with you than, than our height. Think about how God used David, a little shepherd boy, a young teenage boy to bring down a giant. And God does it over and over and over in the Bible because the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.27 that God uses the weak and foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God came to seek and to save little people in Christ. And secondly, Christ came to seek and to save lonely people. Now, you kind of have to see this from the cultural context and what the crowd says. As an outcast, we know that Zacchaeus would not have been popular among his own people. We know he's Jewish. We know he's Jewish for two reasons. The name, Zacchaeus, is a Hebrew name. And secondly, it says in verse 9 that he is also a son of Abraham. So it was kind of like this. Oh, the crowd has rejected him and pushed him away. But hey, guys, he's one of you. He's a son of Abraham. He's part of the chosen people. So he's a Jewish guy, despised by his community, but he has such an insatiable desire to see Jesus. In verse 3, we notice that while Zacchaeus is wealthy and successful in the world's standards, he knew something and someone was missing. And we would all admit, even if you're out there today with a lot of stuff, that the money and the stuff will not buy the joy and the fulfillment and the happiness. Think about the rich young ruler. You know the story. He goes and tells Jesus, I've done this, 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 this. And Jesus said, okay, then only one thing you lack. Go sell all of your possessions. Give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. And it says the rich young ruler went away sad because he had so much stuff. You and I see athletes and superstars and movie stars all the time that are sad and disconnected and lonely. Because even if you got really nice stuff, that stuff is not going to hug you back. It's not going to love you. And so what we find here is that Zacchaeus is longing. In fact, the Bible says that he didn't just want to see Jesus. It says in verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was. Why is this Jesus making a difference in everybody's life? How is it that this Jesus would stop and waste his time for a blind beggar named Bartimaeus? I knew his daddy. I knew Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. I, I 
knew old Timaeus. That family's useless. How is it that this guy can come into our town and he stops and he spends time on the side of the road? I got to see who he is. I got to know what is going on with this one claiming to be a Messiah. You got to remember, Jesus is not the first man to walk through Jerusalem up to, uh, through Jericho up to Jerusalem claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus is the first one that could truly heal and touch and deliver and certainly the only one that would be raised from the dead. And so Zacchaeus said, I've got to see this for myself. And so what happens now, I believe God is beginning to draw him. See, some of you this morning, maybe you're feeling a little lonely. Maybe you're feeling a little disconnected. You're intrigued. You're, you're kind of curious. Who, who is this Jesus? What's his deal? What's he all about? But Christ came to seek and to save lonely people. Zach is up a tree. Jesus is walking by. All the eyes are almost certainly on Jesus. Nobody's paying attention to this little guy. But the Bible says that Jesus reached a certain spot and he stopped. And he looked up. And what did he say? Uh, hey, buddy. Hey, pal, what's your name? Is that what Jesus said? What did he say? Zacchaeus. See, don't miss that. Zacchaeus was known by his name because what you have standing there on the road is God in flesh. Before they ever met face to face, Jesus knew Zach's name. And even if you don't know God today, I promise you, he knows your name. He will call you by name. And what did he say? Zacchaeus, you come down, for I must go. I must go to your house today. It's fascinating. Today, people are searching for God all over the place, man. They're meditating. They're doing all forms of weird stuff. They're rubbing crystals. They're hugging trees. They're in trances and seances and messing with cards and looking to the stars. And we think by our own effort, we can make it to God. But the truth is you will not, cannot, no way, shape, or form make one inch toward God. God has to come to you. That's why the Bible says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God come to us. He had to come where we are, you see. Religion, I've written it like this. Religion is man looking for God. I don't need that. That's a waste of my time. Biblical Christianity is God coming for man. In the garden, Adam and Eve slipped. They fell, they sinned, they disobeyed God. Did they start running around saying, oh God, where are you? Oh God, we realize we need some clothes. This is terrible condition to be in. Oh God, we're ashamed. Lord, help us. Nope. Read your Bible carefully. Genesis chapter three, the Bible says that Adam and Eve went and hid behind the very trees God created to feed them. And then God came to the garden in the cool of the day and God said, Adam, where are you? Not because he didn't know, but he needed Adam to come clean and to come forth. And just like this, Jesus actually came to Zacchaeus. You see, there's an interplay here between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. What would have happened if Zac stayed up in the tree? All I can assume is that he would have missed the blessing and the salvation that came to him that day. But listen to what the psalmist says, Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. 
Have you ever been in a, parents, grandparents, have you ever been in a situation where a kid's gotten loose and hid from you or, or ran away from you in a, like a, a mall or parking lot? Anybody ever had that happen to you? All right, good. See, y'all are, y'all are answering me this morning. First service has looked at me like, and I'm like, come on, you know, you know you've lost your kid before. I can't be the only one that's ever lost a kid. Holly, our one that just got married, used to love getting in the middle of those round racks and just standing there still as a church mouse. And we would be frantic and furious and going, and then you'd see her little pudgy feet underneath the thing, and then you'd get real close and she'd start giggling. But I'm having a heart attack. What do you feel like when they're lost? Even for 10 seconds, what do you feel like? The world is ending, right? The world in that moment. I'm not quite ready to tell you about my Lucy story yet. I'm still getting over it. I got a Lucy story. It was terrible. Anyway. I don't know if I've told her mama yet, so I shouldn't say anything. <laughs> I don't even know where her mama is. She's not here. Oh, she's over here? Oh, my. Okay, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. You know how that feels. Imagine that your kid, maybe they're big enough that they're lost, but they can find a security guy, right, or security guard, and they, they say, hey, I can call my dad. And so, dad, you pick up the cell, and it's the cop, and he says, hey, I have somebody here that needs to speak to you. And your little says, his dad. I'm sorry, I'm lost. What do you do, Dad? Well, listen to me. I tell you what, you just come find me. You're the one that got yourself lost. Why don't you just pick your little backside up and come over here and find me? Is that the way you respond? What do you do? Of course you know what you do. You say, tell me where you are or let the guard tell me where you are. Stay right there. I'm coming, I'll be there. Wherever they are, I'm coming. I will get you. Now, I want you to make a shift in your mind and think about it. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are lost. We are finite, limited creatures, lost and undone. I promise you, the Heavenly Father knows that we're lost. He knows that we're undone. He also knows precisely where we are. So rather than thinking, oh, I'll grope around and try to find my Father, the Father says, if you'll just be still, If you'll just keep your place, I will come to you. And the way he does that is not through a security guard. The way God comes to us lost folk is through the Lord Jesus Christ. When we call on Jesus as our Lord and Savior, Jesus is the connection that has his hand on God and his hand on man. Because when you see Jesus, you not only see the Son of God, you see God, the Son. You see divinity robed in flesh. You see the God-man. This is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And God the Father wants to come to you, but some of you are groping around. If I can fix this and do this, I'll come to God. God says, be still and know that I am God. And I will come to you just like Jesus says, I will come to your house today. You may feel small in the world's eyes and nobody notices you. You can be singing in a room with a thousand people or more and yet you can feel alone. But God knows you and he knows you by name because Christ came to seek and to save little people and lonely people. And of course, you see this one in the text. Christ came to seek and to save lost people. 
Jesus made a declaration, today salvation has come to this house because he's the son of Abraham for the son of man. That's his favorite self-designation. It's from Daniel and other places in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, I'm the son of God and the son of man, and I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. See, you think you're the seeker. You're not. That's why the seeker-sensitive movement has utterly failed. Every great theologian and church growth specialist will tell you the seeker-sensitive movement failed. The ship sailed. I was getting into ministry at about the time it was starting to be the biggest thing going, and I realized right out of the gate, this is not in the Bible. Not because I'm some great biblical scholar, I knew little to nothing and still have a lot to learn, but I knew that in the Bible, God is the seeker. God is the one looking. That's not to say if you seek him and search with your whole heart, he'll hide himself for you, but we are running from God, not running to God. And so when compared with Jesus, all of us are little. And if we're honest, at times all of us feel lonely because all of us were or are lost. When we see that Jesus has set his face toward the cross, you see him also stopping and ministering to the sinners along the way. This is how it happens. Jesus always makes the first move to the dead sinner and offers eternal life, and we couldn't come to him unless he first came to us. So he gives Zacchaeus this twofold command. Come down right away. Make haste. Come immediately. Get out of the tree, Zac. Today's the day. That's like 2 Corinthians 6.2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. See, some of you need to be saved. You're lost, but you can be found. You need to be saved. When do I get saved, pastor? Not when you're good and ready, when God's calling and he's calling today. Today is the day of salvation. Then Jesus gives the second part of the command. I must stay at your house. Why the expression of necessity? Why the must? I mean, Jesus literally invites himself to dinner here, guys. It's the only instance in the four Gospels of Jesus doing just this. He must stay at his house because he's going to show through Zacchaeus what his ministry is all about. Think about it. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And everybody in the community knows this guy, Zac, he's lost, really, really lost. But the Bible says in verse 6 that he made haste and came down. And I think this is where he gets saved, actually. He received him joyfully. I believe it's in that moment. The Lord calls. I come down. Get off my high horse. Get out of my tree. I come down. And the moment I receive him joyfully, just like those gifts. People bring gifts to Holly and Garrett. They had a choice. They brought the gift. They put the gift on the table. They could have left the venue without ever opening the gift. But it's in the opening and the reception of the gift that I get the joy of having and using the gift. And Jesus comes to you through his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension where he mediates today, and he says, here you go, salvation, free and clear, paid for with my blood. See the scars in my hands for you. I did what you couldn't do on your own. Jesus offers it to you. And yet sometimes people walk away and say, yeah, I can do that on my own. No, you can't you got to have this gift. And the Bible says in 6 that Zacchaeus joyfully received the Lord. The, the phrase there means with jubilant exaltation. 
But in contrast to that in verse 6, what happens to the crowd in verse 7? I know, we're quick to judge them. How dare they? A man is getting saved. How dare they judge him? I've done the very same thing. People that have been pretty rotten, people that have kind of been on the fringe, maybe like some of those hippies we saw in the Jesus Revolution movie, it was cool. And I thought, nah, I'm not so sure if they're really saved or not. I don't know. Imagine it's your tax guy that's been skimming off you and your family for years. Imagine you can barely scrape enough money together to make ends meet. And all of a sudden, this guy, this guy generally receives, genuinely seems to receive Jesus. Would you grumble? Well, you might not do it out loud because that wouldn't be very Christian of you. But you probably would under your breath. You probably mumble and grumble and say, ah, doesn't Jesus even know who he's talking to? But see, Jesus came to seek and to save lost people. And there's nobody so lost that God doesn't know where they are. There's nobody so far from God that his arm can't reach out and bring them right back in. You say, well, what do you mean? Are you sure? There's got to be something you can do to keep you from salvation. There is. Don't receive the gift. You'll stay lost. But God saves murderers and God saves adulterers, and God saves prostitutes, and God saves tax collectors, and God can save you, and God saved me. And I tell you right now, I knew for a fact then, and I still know for a fact today that I didn't and I don't deserve it. Does anybody think you deserve salvation? Anybody think you deserve salvation? If you do, then you're not very close to the kingdom. But if you know you don't deserve it. You are very close, if not in the kingdom. And so in contrast to Zach's joy, we see the mumbling, grumbling of the crowd. And, you know, between seven and eight here, the Lord has gone to Zach's house. And we don't really see what unfolds there. But he's gone off and he's in the house. And then Zacchaeus comes and makes this declaration. Now, I like what J. Vernon McGee said. McGee, the pastor, said, look, Zacchaeus didn't come to the door and say, I want to give my testimony. That's a fine thing to do. It's a fine thing to say, I receive Jesus joyfully. But he really lives out James 2, doesn't he? James 2, James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, A man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What, what Zacchaeus does as he stands up, he's received the Lord, and so he says, Look, this is what I'm about to do. I know I've wronged some folks. And so you know what I'm going to do here? I'm going to give my goods to the poor. I'm going to give half of everything I have right away to the poor. And then if I have taken anything wrongly, I'm not just going to do the basics. I'm not going to do what the law says and give them two times. I'm going to give them four times what I took. So if I stole a hundred bucks, I'm going to give them 400 bucks back. I'm going to restore way over what you ask. But remember, Zach's actions were not the root of his salvation, they were the fruit of his salvation. What he did was a sign of what had already happened. Jesus doesn't declare he's saved because he's turned generous. He gets saved and then Jesus says, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence in Zacchaeus' life. This man is changed. And I think whenever Jesus comes in, I don't just think, I know, there will be change. And if there is no change, there's almost certainly no conversion, okay? Even as a kid, I was nine years old, guys. Even as a kid, 
If there's not change, there's no conversion. I tell you what God used in my life as much as any other as a child that has proven my salvation time and time again. It is the conviction I experienced when I did wrong. I did wrong. You find this shocking, I know, but I messed up more than once. My mother's in the house today. She could give you much testimony on the fact that I messed up more than once. But I also think my mother would give you the testimony that I was a child of conviction. I think she would give you the testimony that I did some really stupid things and I made some really bad choices. And yet I think she would testify as my father would if he could that, that he was a kid of conviction. Because when the Holy Spirit's living in there, it doesn't mean that he will keep you from sinning, but it does mean that he will keep you from being comfortable in your sin. That makes sense? You can't be comfortable in it. You can't wallow in it. If you wallow in it, then the heart has not been changed. Zacchaeus wants to right his wrongs, and biblical repentance always goes hand in hand with restitution because conversion is a radical, life-changing, eternity-altering event. He's a different man, so he makes that declaration. And so I'll give you four C words as we bring the train into the station here. He was curious. That's okay. You may be curious today. He wanted to know who is this Jesus. He considered him. I got to go see who this Jesus is. He considered who Jesus is. He was converted. Christ clearly saved him. He received him joyfully, jubilantly, and then he was changed. He was curious, he considered the claims, he was converted, then he was changed. Now don't read, misread, and misapply what I'm saying, right? Don't get it out of order. You can't be changed, and if I get everything right with Jesus, now I'm going to be converted. No, it doesn't work that way. That's foolishness. That's what a lot of world religions will tell you, by the way. A lot of world religions will say, straighten yourself up, and then maybe you'll be right with God or the gods. That's what they'll tell you. That's what they'll teach you. It's works-based salvation. It's not biblical salvation. It's worldly salvation because we're cynical. If it's too good to be true, it must not be true. And nothing's really free. Don't y'all feel that way? Nothing's really free. Everything has strings attached. That's probably true in 99.99% of the cases. But when it comes to salvation, it is a no strings attached offer. That's why the Bible repeatedly says it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Just like I was sharing in Holly's ceremony yesterday as I was doing the dual role of father and officiant. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You never will. Raise the white flag. Stand still. God will come to where you are. So what is the mission of the Messiah? As, as Bobby and Caleb come up and they're going to share this song, Christ came to seek and to save little people and lonely people, and he came to seek and to save lost people. Christ came to seek and to save you. And just like nearly four decades ago, it sounds so long ago now, nearly four decades ago, 38 years ago, Christ came to seek and to save me. He came to change me. And he's not finished with me yet. Sometimes I still feel short and insignificant in God's eyes, but I know that through Christ, God has raised me up to sit in heavenly places. Sometimes I still feel a little lonely but I know that Jesus is always as close as my right hand. And I'll tell you this today, some of you may or may not feel lost, but if you have never received God's free gift of salvation and Jesus' perfect sacrifice, his burial, his resurrection, if you have never received that gift by faith, 
you are lost. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Jesus has changed everything about my life. And I got to tell you guys, looking at my kids yesterday, looking at Holly, obviously, in that beautiful gown, seeing Hannah and Heather standing there with her and then seeing Uncle Bo or Bobby right here, all duded up, standing on the other side. Looking right over here and seeing Miss Lucy who fell asleep during my message, which is typical, and little Sophia and Parker and Garrett, my mom, Cindy's mom, seeing our friends. Here's what I knew. That when you're a person of faith and you can see that faith being passed down into the next generation, and you can see them beginning to pass it down to the next generation. That is a blessing beyond any job, beyond any big old church. That is a blessing beyond anything that God will ever give you to say there is a legacy of faith here. Because if I'm not gonna do it, it's the, now the patriarch, if you will, with my father gone, if I'm not gonna do it, it's the man of the family, who's gonna do it? It's my responsibility. Along with Miss Cindy, it's our privilege because Jesus has changed us and we want to be an agent that he uses to see the change in our children and in our children's children. Life change, eternity change, to go from lost to found. That is the mission of the Messiah. Stand with me this morning. These boys are gonna bless you here with a song. I'm so proud of these guys. Two of our big old football players over here. I'm proud of these guys playing and singing for Jesus. I'm proud of these students. Mama P, we love you. Two decades of pouring into these kids. I hope God gives you two or three or five more, whatever it is. I hope that, uh, I love seeing what God does through you. And I love these kids up here worshiping. And I love that, that our church and our school are in great harmony um, because we know we're all in the Grace family. Thank you for being here today. I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna ask you to pray. If you know Holly and Garrett, would you do me a favor, just the personal favor from a father's heart? They're going to uh, Asheville and then heading to Paris and, and uh, Paris is pretty in some places and scummy is the bottom of your shoe in other places. So I pray that they will be safe and smart and wise and uh, that they will be protected and that he will keep his hands off my daughter and all of that. Um, I know. <laughs> Um, I'm just, would you, if you know Holly and Garrett and love them, do you mind praying for them and asking God to bless them? Not just on a great honeymoon, but a great life. If he chooses to bless them with children one day long from now, that you would uh, ask God to allow them to pour into their kids the love of Jesus. Would you, if you know them and love them, just be willing to come forward and pray for them in a minute? If you know some of the folks in our family of faith that are hurting today, um, we've been praying for Debbie McConnell. She's a sweet gal and her little granddaughter's been on a very, very difficult path. Um, if you know the McElroys, we've been praying for them. If you know somebody, they're a tidal wave, a tsunami is coming toward them of challenge. Um, Parker's daddy, TJ. A tidal wave called cancer is coming and it's very close to shore. And I'm gonna ask you to pray for God's strength and peace and comfort and he is just praying to hold on for a few weeks till his daughter, Parker's sister, has her first child. She painted a live picture at the wedding yesterday. She's so gifted of Holly and Garrett and what a sweet family, but TJ couldn't be with us. 
But if you know Parker and them and you're willing to pray for them, and listen, you know other needs. It's not just our family. I'm just asking you to be personal and be intercessory with your prayers. I'm asking you from a father's heart, from a father-in-law's heart, to be a person of prayer today. Would you be willing to come and do that or for any other needs in your heart, your life, your family? Pastors and counselors will be here. If you're lost and undone and need to be saved and found, if you're ready to say yes to Jesus, today's the day. Come and settle it right now.